welcome to the books that built me. For those of you that haven't met me before, I'm Helen Brockenbank and I'm the founder of the books that built me. Um, and many of you have met me before and it's fantastic to see you back here. I'm really happy to be in this very sexy, chic, glamorous Devonshire club. I hope it was easy to get to. And also a level of sophistication of books that built me has has not hitherto had. So anyway, all, all fabulous. Um, I'm obviously particularly thrilled to welcome our guest this evening, who is Jake Arnott, who's best-selling author of The Long Firm and many other exciting noirish books that I know many of you have read. And obviously we're here to talk about his latest book, The Fatal Tree. Um, now Jake says, uh, I learned to read by scanning the backs of trashy thrillers. <laughs> and this has had a woeful influence on my prose style ever since. Now what remains to be seen is if that's had a woeful influence on the choice of the books that have built me. But we're going to see that in a minute. So please join me in welcoming Jake Arnott. I've got no idea where I found that quotation. It's brilliant. I, I can't remember where I put... I, 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 I often refer to the fact that our house was full of books, but a lot of them were kind of very gaudy paperbacks that my dad had picked up at Marlborough Station um, Bookstore. Um, but a bit like my friend here who I brought along. Um, <laughs> very gaudy. That's um, my hat to go in my sleeves. I know. <laughs> it's on the hat. Being very self-effacing in the corner, but obviously wanted to draw attention to themselves. And I think that, I mean, in some respects, I... I, I'm not sure if it'll be reflected in the choice of books, but I, I, I do quite like um, where kind of popular and avant-garde meet. I don't like the idea of high art and low art. Oh, wait, think, are you lowbrow? No I think I'm lowbrow, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I much prefer lowbrow to highbrow. Um, so what were the trashy thrillers that you read the back of? Did, I, I Did you actually get further from the back of the book? The blur? The blur, well, when I discovered that you could find out the whole of the book by the bit on the back. I thought, what's the point of reading that whole book? <laughs> and actually, the Beatles came out with a song called Paperback Writer, which some of you remember, in, I think, 65, so it was about four. And I couldn't quite work out what a paper... I thought it was a paper bag writer. But I, <laughs> paper, I actually thought the paperback writer was the person who wrote the thing on the back. It was the person who wrote the blurb. That would be... That would Really. Yeah, and I thought that's what I want to be. I want to be the person to write the blurb on the back. Um, and I sort of do try and write the blurb on the back, but then sort of extend it. Did you write the blurb on the back for the paper tree? Oh no, I, they, somebody else does somebody it for me. Yeah. Oh, I see. I well, thought no, you were going to have massive control yeah. freakery and like that. <laughs> you said I must do the blurb myself. I must do the blurb myself. Nobody can say it better. But we're going to so we'll talk about we'll talk about your books in a minute. I want yeah. to talk a bit about the paper. Tree first. It's only it's only out. I think three, four weeks, if that. Um, end of February. Yeah, yeah, it's about a month. It's about a month. So, yeah. Has any, nobody's managed to read it yet, have they? Please tell me you haven't, because your books are there. When you come up to your <laughs> sign in, your you collect collect your book in your in your goodie bag. So, um, so tell us tell us a little bit about the fatal tree because it's a, a somewhat of a departure from. Well, Actually, no, it isn't, because your books are so eclectic. Yeah, I, I think often people say, oh, it's a, it's a book's a departure, isn't it? And I always think, well, I hope so. It should, it should be an arrival. <laughs> Writing the same book ten I'm times. more interested on where things are going than where things are, you know. Um, but it's a sort of, in some ways, it's actually returned to some of the things I looked at in my first novel. Although well, it's 300 years ago in London. We're still looking at corruption in, in high places. We're looking at kind of a criminal underworld. We're looking at... Um, a sort of sexual underworld as well. 
Um, there was a tremendously vibrant gay scene in London in the 1720s, largely because there was a corrupt system of what we call thief takers. There weren't actually, um, there wasn't an official police force, or the, the, even the Bow Street Runners hadn't come about yet, but there were people who set themselves up as thief takers. And one of the thief takers was gay, uh, Charles Hitchens. The, the more famous thief taker, Jonathan Wilde, who some of you might have heard of, uh, who took over in this sort of gang war, this sort of land grab, with this huge racket of running London. Because if you were the thief taker, you, you, you promised to apprehend villains and recover stolen goods, but because you ran the gangs and you had all the stolen goods. So there's all this going on. There's all this going on in London. Uh, we've just had the South Sea bubble. <laughs> <laughs> you have now arrived at your destination. <laughs> Mickey, my publicist, for <laughs> Always making a fashion we make cases. Um, where was it? Oh, yeah. So, with this sort of background, uh, we have a, a, a kind of. Um, we have, it's the story of Edgeworth Bess, who was Jack Shepard's mistress. I was talking to Eve earlier about um, uh, who might be related to Jack Shepard even just by marriage, um, not married to Jack, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> to the Shepherd family. He was very, very famous. He was famous for escaping. He was a bit like the Ronnie Biggs of his day. He kept evading justice, and by doing that, he became a, quite a challenge to this corrupt criminal justice and, system at the time. And famous and fabulous and incredibly glamorous as well. Made, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. There was a whole kind of underworld that was written about at the time. They became, these people became famous in their own lifetimes. And, but it's the woman's story, it's uh, Edgeworth Bess, who was his mistress, who allegedly um, was the woman who um, led him astray from his apprenticeship. She was the femme fatale of this period, and in, in one, of his, one of Jack Shepard's narratives, he sort of denounces her near the end, um, and he says, of, uh, he says of Bess, a more wicked, deceitful and lascivious wretch was not known in England. Which I thought, now that's the girl for me. <laughs> and so it's her story. It's um, it's largely fictionalised because there's not because it's a woman. Um, there there is her story hasn't really properly been told. I, I had a, a few court reports and narratives that mention her that I kind of I put her sort of story together. Um, and yeah, it's very really very interesting. Um, I think she's a fantastic character um, and a story well worth telling. I think sometimes. I look back in history and find little gaps, um, the little cracks between the, the floorboards, I suppose. Floorboards of history? I like the floorboards of history. The well-varnished floorboards of history. There are these sort of cracks, and that's where you find the interesting stuff. Uh, and her story, she sort of really, she, she was calling out to, uh, to have her story properly told. And you bring her to extraordinary vivid life. I hope so. I, hope, I mean, I had to make it up. I had to make her story up. I had to fit, it's mostly... I mean, all the bare bones of her life are there, but they really are quite bare and quite sparse. But I think it's very interesting when you find a woman in history, particularly a woman that's not um, high-born or royalty, that actually has so much agency and has so much ac action in her life. I think that's really worth looking at, because I think then you see the world in a different way, in a more interesting way. Because we've all heard the stories, you know, the men's stories, I think. Right, so, I mean, and actually Jack Shepard's stories were being famous in the day. It's not for a minute, yeah. just, you know, yeah. stuff of ballads and mentions and you know, all that, all, uh, I mean, well, well, doc well documented mm. in popular fiction. And, uh, and what's interesting is she, she was, I mean, they were kind of like a Bonnie and Clyde of, of Georgian London. 
and her, she was actually as active as he was. I mean, she helped him escape uh, on one occasion. They escaped together on another occasion. She sort of obviously she was a bit more savvy than he was. Um, but of course, she, she she of course gets denounced as the as as you always. I mean, it's a noir. It's a noir. It's a noir kind of standard that you have a, a femme fatale. And I'm always interested in a femme fatale because of course they they are much more interesting than that. There, there, there's, this, there's, a, there's a real narrative behind that as well. I mean, we, we, when we were, we, Jake and I had this amazing walk uh, to the to the fatal, you know, to the site of the fatal, mm. from the site of from Newgate, from Newgate Prison to mm. to Tyburn. Well, I want to talk about that just a bit in a minute. But I said, so where, where is, where's the start point? He said, "Was Mont Flanders meets a clockwork orange," <laughs> which I thought was the most amazing way of describing this book. Because um, she's a kind, she's a, a kind of more glamorous figure, although yeah. you know, kind of more 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 glamorous, more interesting, and more and more criminal in some ways. Yeah, I mean, Mort Flanders is an interesting book. Daniel Defoe actually did go into Newgate Prison and interview women who were incarcerated there. It's said that Mort Flanders is the amalgam of two particular women that he he spoke to in in Newgate: um, Mort King, Mort King, uh, and uh, Calico Sarah. Uh, they all have these fantastic street names. Uh, I mean, what's interesting is the people. Punk Alice. Yeah, Punk Alice. Punk Alice is actually is a fictional character, but the name Punk Alice actually comes from Ben Johnson's Bartholomew Fair, because punk, punk actually, the slang at the time, because there's a lot of street slang that I used at that time. Punk actually at that time meant um, a, 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 a small female prostitute. It then later on become means a sort of boy prostitute. But yeah, Punk Alice is, is made up, but she does she does have a fictional kind of uh, progenitor. Also. Uh, uh, Edgeworth Bess ends up running around with a with a woman, another another horn pickpocket, known who's called Paul Maggot. <laughs> just great. You, you can't make this Brilliant. stuff up. Um, there's something very. I thought there was something very vibrant, very lively, very modern about that world. Um, it's a world of gangs. It's a world of of kind of. It's a, it's it's before you get this sort of Victorian morality. So people are very. It's a very tough lo- life, and you you. Got a good chance of being hanged, but people are very open about sex and about morality, particularly about sex. Actually, um, it's more libertarian time, uh, which I, I, I found um, quite interesting. I mean, you mentioned Defoe because he did he write the did he did he write the story of uh, Jack Shepherd? It's still wrote... it's still up for grabs academically, uh, looking at various sources. He Defoe's quite interesting because he has he's 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 got success quite late in life with. Robinson Crusoe and with Mole Flanders. And then he goes into, I think from his experience with Mole Flanders, he becomes interested in criminal narratives and the kind of criminal mind in a way. And it's said that he goes from Jack Shepard's last um, narrative. Because this is the beginnings of journalism. What would happen was that the, the tradition was you'd have the last dying speech sold as a pamphlet at Joanne Hanging. Um, the, the, the you want to be famous, like I mean, like the craze. You know, it's not enough to be criminal; you have to be glad, you know, know. famous as well. But I mean, it's worse than that. The chaplain would come down and take your confession and sell it. <laughs> so a lot of sav- a lot of the very savvy criminals, including Jack, um, would make their own deal. So the actual hanging, although that there's you know basically the launch day of your memoirs is when you, <laughs> when you do the time and jig. But at least you'd have enough money to have a nice suit of clothes and a coffin. It's very important to have a coffin because without a coffin at your hanging, the, the surgeons might come and, and take your body, your body and steal your body. Yeah. 
So it was very for useful a, to for um, anatomizing. To, for anatomizing, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we see we, we, yeah, we went we went to the hunter um uh, the Hunter Museum, no. the Hunterian Museum, yeah, which is it's where the Royal College of Surgeons, Surgeons Hall, Surgeons Hall used to be at that time would have been, um, it would have been by the Old Bailey, uh, but now it's at the the bottom end of uh, of, of Lincoln's Field. Of course, then they were the it was it, they were a guild. They, I mean, what's interesting about surgeons, even now, they don't call each other doctor; they call each other Mister because it's a recognition. But they still, they come out of quite a brutal tradition because it would have been the guild of um, surgeons and barbers. Um, but it, what, what's interesting was they become scientific because of all the bodies that they could dissect at this time. They, they, because so many people were being hanged. Because there was this, 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 there was this fear of crimes against property that comes out, out of the South Sea bubble. The South Sea bubble was the first kind of collapse of global capitalism, capitalism in 1720, a bit like the credit crunch. Um, but it, exactly like the credit crunch. The bankers and stock jobbers, as they called them there, got away with it. They, they carry on. The capitalism, there's no change there. But what does happen is a clampdown. 50 new, uh, there was something called the Black Act that was passed because that's such a fear of, of, of the poor. Um, and yeah, 50 new um, offences became uh, liable for capital punishment. So there's a huge amount of, of, um, of bodies to be dissected. And this is, a point, this is interesting about what we call the Enlightenment. I mean, it is based on exploration, um, i.e. imperialism and colonialism, and, you know, scientific exploration, mm. i.e. having lots of dead bodies, you could say, from, from, from Tyburn. And what's interesting, if you go to the Hunterian, the, the villain of the piece, um, Jonathan Wilde, who was a thief-taker, who was such a criminal himself, in the end goes a bit too far and um, ends, up. ends up on the gallows himself. And he tried to make sure that he wouldn't be anatomised. Uh, and he had a coffee. He was buried actually at St Pancras uh, Church up in um, you know north of King's Cross. So he was so unpopular they dug him up the next day and, uh, and <laughs> cut him up. <laughs> so if you go to the Hunterian, the first thing you see if you go into the museum is his skeleton. So it's quite interesting to have. I, if I ever wanted to go and see one of my characters, I could just go and pop in, say hello, hello to John. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would say the. I mean, uh, in common with uh, with other with other of your books, it's not just about the glamorous, faster uh, than life uh, criminals in the un, un, kind of colourful underworld. It's all about about the artist too. Mm. I mean, in this case, the um, uh, the writers of Grub Street. So mm. Billy Archer's a really interesting character because he's a that defeating thing of writing the writing the confessional kind of memoir of Edgeworth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Billy. Billy is a fi again a fictional character, um, and he he is sort of he 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 kind of he, he he's kind of writing Bess's narrative. Um, he's also part of the Molly House world, which is the gay the gay kind of cult subculture. But he's he's he he's sort of his connection with Grub Street at that time. He, he sort of gets befriended by, by John Gay, who's a real writer, who goes on to write The, the Beggar's Opera, which is based on a lot of the events that happen. Um, Billy is sort of, he's slightly close to me as well. He's what was called at the time, the, in the criminal slang of the day, uh, uh, writers for hire would be called hackney scribblers. Hackney meaning for hire, um, you know, like hackney carriage. But it also, it also hints at prostitution. In 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 in, in um, uh, what's it called? Hogarth's the Har Harlot's Progress. And the Harlot there is called Mole Hackabout. Yeah. She boy does she hack about. Um, <laughs> and of course, so and uh, uh, yeah, the, the 
hackney script. That's where the term hack actually was first come, comes into our, our, our parliament. Um, and Billy is a bit of a hack, but he also wants to write something of great worth and great, you know, great portal. He doesn't really get well. In, in the end, this is this is sort of what it what, what it ends up being. Yeah. Which we mustn't we mustn't, we mustn't say. Yet, but we will say a little bit about the language because that's um, one of the great bravura flourishes of the book is that it's written in authentic eighteenth century Queen's Cant or parts of it are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I I I I kind of try to get the balance right. Of, it's not for those who know um, Andy Burgess' Clockwork Orange. You go straight into this invented street slang that he invented, um, and so it's quite it's quite a kind of it's quite a shock, really. With this, I try to as best learns the language. I hope the reader learns it as well. There is a glossary at the back, but I hope it's not something that one has to rely on too much. What, what are your favorite? What are your favorite bits of uh, these camps? I quite like. Um, it's funny. What it was a time of spectacle. Um, you know, the criminal justice system has its spectacle. The court was open. The old Bailey was open in the street. And there is this procession to Tyburn. There was public hangings. Uh, and and the, the 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 flash flash is the name of the the, the, the underworld slang. And the flash term for the spectacle was gapeseed. They talk about the gapeseed, which I quite um, I love rabbit, rabbit catcher. Rabbit catcher is Guess the... what a rabbit catcher is? Anyone? <laughs> a midwife. A midwife. <laughs> I mean, attitude, it's interesting because we had the launch at, at the Foundling Museum and this was all before, you know, the, the Foundling Hospital was set up because there were so many children who were left by their mothers. And this was a place where mothers could actually leave them and, uh, with the hope that they might be looked after. But actually, if you think about the child mortality at that time and, and the, the attitude towards children, um, it's pretty brutal, and a, a child would be called a squeaker. Um, but the flash slang for getting rid of an unwanted child was to stifle a squeaker. And when I read that, I just thought that tells you all you need to know about how tough life was. Um, and it's a very, it's a very, very harsh time. But it's a very funny. I mean, there's a lot of gallows humour, particularly in Flash. I like, um, you know, a, 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 a portrait painter as a fizzmonger, um, a dancing master as a caper merchant. There's a sort of playfulness, I thought. And quite, I mean, like Nightman's also is nice. Darkman's, Darkman's, yeah, night is Darkman's, day is Lightman's. Um, so Benny, Benny, it, there's quite a bit, little bits of Italianate in it. So to say, Benny, Benny Lightman's is good. Day. Um, you know, it's like, like Nick's, Nick's, my, Nick's doll. my doll. Yeah, yeah, Nick's my doll. No way, sweetheart. Basically, <laughs> you don't even just say Nick's my doll. We should we should talk about you as a squeaker, really. Mm, my my life as a squeaker. <laughs> I shall not stay. I was a squeaker. I was a squeaker. Somebody pointed out in the in one of the reviews I have Billy um being hanged nearly hanged at birth by the um Oh by the umbilical cord. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, I put in the book that this is a common this is a common um superstition that if you were nearly hanged at birth you won't be hanged in in hell. Which is actually made up. I like it. I love <laughs> it. Because it, it happened to me. I, I, I was nearly hanged at birth. Um and I did. I didn't cry. Apparently, I I, I pitched. I I emitted this high pitched squeak because I was sort of in shock. I was, it feels like it feels like the kind of your life hung by a thread. It certainly did. And I'm squeaking. I'm squeaking yet. This is my squeak. Still squeaking. This is my squeak. So um, so we're going to talk about your first your first book, which is I've lost. Oh, I haven't very often. Mm. I was looking. Sorry, I was just many, looking. Many things got lost in the Westminster emergency earlier, yeah, yeah. so and then found. Thank you. 
Uh, so we, so the first book you chose Alice of Adventures in Wonderland. Yeah. Tell me when you first read this. When you when, well, when you were reading the backs of the no, 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 no. This is before. I, this is this is pre. What I was what I was interested in looking at it, it, at is is where where do you first come in contact with books and reading? And of course, it wasn't me reading this. Um, talk about listen with mother, listen with father. I remember my father reading Alice in Wonderland. I, I came from quite a big family. And so I think I was quite young for the, he was reading it to a whole, I don't know how many of us at, at night. And so I might have been, I don't know, maybe three or four. That's quite tiny for quite a Quite tiny, or maybe, maybe a bit old. It's so hard to know because my memory, my memory of Alice in Wonderland and little bits of Alice in Wonderland are very primal. It's, I, there's a sort of sense of being in semi-darkness of a bedside light and my dad's voice. And these strange, strange stories. Very, very strange story. Quite scary a bit. So I remember the bit where, you know, where the, 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 the Duchess is putting pepper on the child. <laughs> Speak roughly to your little boy and beat him when he sneezes. He only does it to annoy because he knows he sneezes. And they're beating, you know, he's, the boy, they're making the child sneeze and then beating him. That's interesting. <laughs> it's, quite... it's scary. And the, 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 actually, the thing that struck me as real tragedy was then Alice gets to hold the baby and it turns into a pig. It's a pig. There's all sorts of things in Alice in Wonderland that are quite unsuitable for a mm -hmm. young child. So, of course, I lapped it up. I love that, the absurdity. And I think the playfulness of language. And it is an unconscious book anyway. And so for an unconscious mind, it kind of went straight in there. It's all about something below the surface. And I think Freud said that marine life is often, there's something, you know, when you dream about fish and sick. it's often there's something sexual there and in Lewis Carroll there's always there's there's so many you know fishes and you know go a little faster said the porpoise to the snail there's a, no no move a little faster the whiting to the snail there's a porpoise close behind me and he's my tail um so yeah there's a strange kind of discomfort about it actually when you read it later in adult life yeah. it's a, yeah. a but, book that isn't no, I well, but I think I think I don't think I don't think children should be given suitability. No, do you know I mean, what I mean? It's not, it's it's not a good film for a book. No, need the bookshelf open. And I remember, you know, some bits of like the lobster. You know, the voice of the tis the voice of the lobster. Tis, and I realised, of course, the voice of the lobster is the sound the lobster makes when it's, it's being born and alive. But it's this wonderful, wonderful poem. You know, tis the voice of the lobster. I heard him declare, "You have baked me too brown. I must sugar my hair." As the duck with his eyelids, so he with his nose trims his belt and his buckles and turns out his touch. When the sand's all dry, he is gay as a lark, and will talk in contemptuous terms of the shark. But when the tide rises and sharks are around, his voice has a timid and tremulous sound. I mean, there's this wonderful playfulness. There's always threat, there's always menace, and there's always this sort of strange. You know, the surrealists often have these sorts of. The lobster and the sort of shellfish and these sort of strange. It's very sort of like Dali or something in terms of words. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I immediately thought books are this, there's this other world. Some magic. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, so were you? Were, did you have? Uh, was that a regular thing then, having books read to you as, um, as a family? How many were? There were five of us. I I don't know how often it happened. My father. Like commuted, we were up and out in the suburbs. So I think it was, you 
no, I'd often not see him the whole week because he, he'd come, I was already... So I think often he would try and read to us at night, um, almost to have that sort of contact. Um, because he was a very, very... Still is, I mean, still around. He, he's still a very, very hungry reader. Um, and he would read almost anything. So where does his, where does his taste, taste go? Just any, any, anything, really Catholic. anything. Very, very broad taste. And he'd often quite like very bad books. He read, he's a very, very fast reader, but he would, he would read just for sheer pleasure. I remember one holiday he picked up a whole series of very bad, sort of, I don't know how to describe them. The only way to describe them is sort of soft porn pirate books. <laughs> they had this, in the 1970s, they had this sort of photographic, semi, you know, this girl in a tricorn hat and this some sort of strange, seedy looking pirate. And they were called Black, Black Bartleby's Treasure. And Black Bartleby's Revenge. There was a whole series. And he'd read whole passages. That's really, really appalling, appalling text. But it was just so funny. And I, I think what I learned from him was don't have good taste. Don't have, you know, don't say you should read this. Just read what you like and you'll find what suits you, I think. And we're there, I mean, we're there always lots of books in the house. What about your mum? Was she a reader? Yeah, too yeah, busy yeah. with five children. She was too busy with five children. And she, she probably had a bit more, ta- you know, a bit more discernment than my dad. <laughs> Well, he had access to the uh, the railway. Uh, well, that was store. that was a thing. Yeah, he would get the train from Melbourne to 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 Wendover. You know, it's a forty minute journey. So uh, the evening standard wasn't wasn't enough. Um, Alice McLean or something. Alice McLean. I really chose Alice McLean because I thought, God, I read all the. But I remember reading Alice McLean, and I, I think that, I think it was on. I, I realised that Alice. This is one about thirteen or something. I realised Alice McLean kept on. Any room would be there. Would be always the smell of ac- the acrid smell of, smell of stale cigarettes. <laughs> well, can't you use that already, Alistair? And I think that's quite good. It's quite good to read. I mean, you've got to be careful. You don't want to get addicted to bad books. But you know, this is how you learn your taste by reading anything, really. I mean, it's like a, quite a question of um, what do you mean, like deselecting stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and also, kind of learning. I mean, it's what you um, what you learn about bad writing as, as well as what you learn about good writing. Yeah, useful yeah. language. So I don't yeah, I'm going to talk about. I, I'm, I'm talking about in some of my choices later. But I mean, this is one of the problems of being a writer is that sometimes that you get more pleasure reading bad books than good books because you know oh, I can do better than that. <laughs> and then you read something really good and you're like, God, I hate this. <laughs> and so it can. It, it, you've got to be careful of that. Have you had a, had a longing to write something properly trashy? I'd love to write really, really trashy, but I, I don't think I can. Because I think what, what you do find is, whatever, if it works... It's a, it is a skill. If it works, there's something happening. You don't know what it is. But the writer, it, you can't fake it. I think a reader will, des- will detect if a book is... if somebody's punching below their weight. Um, so, yeah, I think... You know, I like I like this I like elements of punk pulp fiction. I think um, because of that energy and that sort of sense that, in some ways, it can sometimes go very close to uh, the avant-garde, and sometimes it does. You know, sometimes um, sometimes things can occupy both of those spaces. I mean, Jorge Luis Borges, the Argentinian writer, is often considered you know one of the greatest writers of the twentieth century. His first short story. Uh, to be translated into English, uh, the Garden of Falking Pass was first published in a, in, 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 in an Ellery Queen mystery magazine oh my God, because it works because it works as a mystery story. 
And people say, oh, it's a great mystery story. And so I quite like that. I quite like when things can work on both levels. How often is that, do you think, the, the, that difference between high and low art? Sometimes, oh, just a, a trick of publishing. I mean, it's, you know, it's been packaged in a particular way and they're marketed commercially. Yeah. So people talk a lot about commercial covers, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's... I think this is from my often I, I it's my it's always a danger to talk about how you might be perceived yourself. I think one of the problems I have is that the commercial world often think that I'm a literary writer, and the literary world will think I'm a commercial writer. Because I don't think I'm either really. I think I'm somewhere between. I don't know where I. You've had that very lucky thing of being a big literary writer that sold. I know that's what I basically that was that you see that was my plan. That was my plan. Still my plan. It's still my my my, my cunning plan. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't, you can't, you know. In some ways, you have no control over how you're perceived or how how well you sell. But you sort of have. Every writer has a, some sort of agenda, and some writers do want to be taken seriously as a great literary writer, and that's I think that's you know, that's laudable. And they, you know, really, you know, they're kind of not wanting to show off. But as like me and my friend here, well, I mean, this is this is a sort of representation of me. You know, I, I, I stand in the corner, pretend to be self-effacing. Actually, I look incredibly cool. I look at me. Not really, no. I mean, and I do think that partly because I left school early and I didn't, you know, I, I sort of. It's not a chip on the shoulder, but I do want to show off a little bit. If you had to choose, if you could, if you could, you had to, you had to say, right, I've got to sit in one camp or the other because of some. Terrible pom pom thing happening. Don't exhaust me. You have to say we'd rather have critical acclaim mm. or sell shed loads of copies. It's a bit like what's that thing like marry or yeah. I mean, I I, I think not marry or yeah. I think you see, there's two things there. There's always a danger in going after critical. And there's also a danger about wanting to sell shed loads of copies because it's never going to be enough. Um, I think the people I know that do, they, they'll go, oh, so, you know, you know, I've only ever beat, you know, they'll say, my last book, I only got to number four. Or something. Well, why are you worrying about that? And number two is the worst place to be. So when, so when, so that was a book you had read to you. When did you, kind of, when did you first start, take, up, take up with reading yourself? It's hard to know. I mean, I, I was trying to work out for, specifically for this. So it's with Treasure Island as an expert. Who has read? Red Treasure Island? Not Red Treasure Island? You know the story. We'll, ca- I, we'll carry on. I mean, I, I, this wasn't the first, this wasn't the first book I read, but I think it was the first proper kind of, I thought, oh yeah, this is a proper book that I've read. Um, and I think what's interesting about Treasure Island and, and about Stevenson as well is that he's fantastic. Uh, for for boys, it's a, it, it's um, Treasure Island and Kidnap. There aren't that many girl characters. Now. I think that's one of the failing of Stevenson. I'd say is it's 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 great if you're a, a boy because it's all about boyhood and it's all about relationships between um, between men actually and how that works. You know, between I mean the relationship between Jim and John Silver is just phenomenal. Uh, and it's, it 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 try, it actually makes you think about what what is about things like about right and wrong and how complicated they are because actually the um, I mean it's a, such a strange book it's kind of about money laundering and interestingly my third book I had this whole this whole um, this whole 
section where um, a, a heist like the, the Brinks map, because it's, it's easy to, skill, to steal $26 million worth of gold. How then do you convert that into real money? Money laundering is the hardest thing. This is where, this is where criminals really fall down. Um, and what's interesting about money laundering that time was what they, what they did was they get a shell company in the British Virgin Islands and then bury the, bury the treasure, bury the treasure in the Caribbean and then dig it up again. And essentially that's what happens in Treasure Island. All these sort of very, all the legitimate characters, they go off to find the treasure and you think, well, does it really belong to them? And what's interesting about John Silver is he's a very, he's such an ambivalent character. He's a terrible character. He's an awful, he's a scoundrel, and yet we love him. We completely love him, he's magnetic. And he's also, I mean, he's, there's so many things interesting about him. And I, you see, I feel that he's never been properly served, uh, or very rarely served well, in his, his, how he's de depicted in, in um, adaptations, because he's usually presented as a grotesque, and famously, you know, the, the Robin Hood, in the book, it's not like that at all. He's described as having some schooling and can talk like a book when he wants to. He's very bright. Uh, and interestingly, he has a, a wife or a mistress, a, a woman of colour, interestingly, who's off the map, who does all the business for him. And he's also, he's also a very, very, um, I wouldn't say positive, uh, he's not really a positive image of disabled people, but boy, does he have agency. Robert Louis Stevenson's editor and very close friend, um, W. E. Henley, uh, had his leg amputated when he was quite young. And he wrote, you know, famously Invictus, um, is about the experience of being in hospital with that. But he said, he said it was the sight of your main strength that gave rise to, to John Silver, because he could move really quickly. And you see people, I've seen people, you know, amputees, you see they can, they, they can move very, very quickly on a pair of crutches. And um, famously, still uses a crutch as a weapon. So he has all this. He has this tremendous. This there's a tremendous sort of. Uh, for, and I say, when you grow up, you're supposed to have these sorts of very fixed ideas of what an adult role role model is, and this completely turns it on its head, mm -hmm. which I love. And it was, it was a really it's a hugely important book to you. And you wrote uh, the. Which I didn't. I didn't know actually. Although I have. <laughs> I have secreted a copy away just because you gave it to me. You have a you did a, a foreword for it. Yeah, yeah. Vintage. vintage classics. Had a whole series of, of reprints of, 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 of famous books. Asked me if I wanted to write the introduction to Treasure Island. And I just thought, so how did that even, yes. that even happen? I mean, and they get, they pay. I mean, it was a huge fee, but I would have paid them. <laughs> I mean, interesting. Don't tell them. Don't tell them. Never say that. You'll be writing forwards to say that to anybody. Sticky punch. Um, I mean, interestingly, on the radio recently, it was only about five years ago, I tuned in, and um, John McCarry was reading Treasure Island on the radio. I think, what is he doing that for? He doesn't, he doesn't need to do that, that gig. But he, obviously, he'd love to read it. I mean, it's a wonderful book, and fantastic. Um, and of course, for a child, I knew, we all know the pirate story. I was playing pirates before I read the book. But what happens is, I realised by the time I'd finished this book, I realised there's something as exciting as playing, and that's reading. Reading a book like that, it's like, and I was, I mean, I, strangely enough, I was an, one of those eye-patch children. I had a lazy eye, so I spent a lot of my um, childhood not really being able to see properly, because what they do is they, they put a patch on the good eye to 
try and make the line full time to work, work, which doesn't really work. <laughs> and I remember being told, you know, I was going to have an eye patch. I thought, oh, fantastic. <laughs> but it was, it was this horrible kind of elastic thing that covered half my face. Um, but so consequently, I couldn't really get involved in rough and tumble very much as a child. So I mm. did start to read. I mean, in some ways, reading was part of, particularly adventure stories, was a way of, and I think it's true for a lot of children, um, boys and girls, you know, it's a way of. You know, you play, I think, and writers, I think writers are often people who spend a lot of time on their own as children and playing on their own, you know, making up adventures, making up stories. Yeah, and having the, and having the adventure that you can't have because you're the other children, because the other children's adventures are always a bit lacking, people. Well, sometimes you think that, think that they yeah, could do, they could have could yeah. done better, yeah. the B minors. Yeah. I'm going to read a book. <laughs> so, <that was> <laughs> um, so, so Treasure Island was the book that really gave you the bug? I think so. I think it was the idea that this is... Um, I mean, it's a perfectly... Constru- as I say, my big criticism is that if you're a girl, you don't think, well, where do I fit with this? Um, but if you're a boy, it's like a perfectly constructed book in terms of you, you, you can just go in there, you can identify, and you can become part of this adventure and it's all in the text it's all the way he uses words and it's very moving it's very touching there's astonishing bits in it i mean early on when the the admiral benbow he's growing up and, and, and billy bones the pirate turns up with a, who has the sea chest um with a, with a map in it all the way through that his father's dying and it's just in the background it's not mentioned it's not dwelt upon you realise he's going through all sorts of strange emotional things. There's quite, I mean, that most of there's a lot of emotional subtlety in it, which mm. I hadn't really, until I reread it as an adult, I hadn't really, no. hadn't really picked up. Well, I, I hadn't also realised that Julius Stevenson wrote it tremendously quickly. I mean, he has a big though, did you know this? Yeah, he wrote well, it um, in 35 seconds, with a gap, and then wrote it in 35 seconds and done with it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, what was interesting as well is the vision of it, because he, he had a, a stepson, uh, which he dedicates the book to. And one afternoon, on a one rainy afternoon, which is almost every rainy afternoon they were, they, um, they were making a, a coloured map together. And he, they make this wonderful map, and, he puts a, and that gives him all he needs to know. And I think that's the interesting thing about maps and about the kind of, I don't know, there's something, there's, yeah, there's, there's often an image that one has. And is that how it works for you? You kind of have a... Well, having said that, I can't think of an example. <laughs> well, we're kind of, you know, actually a single, I mean, that, you know, it's the map, but it's also X marks the spot, isn't it? It's the kind of single, the single thought of what happens mm. next. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, we should, who, who hasn't <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. My, my 13 year old is woefully illiterate. He's telling me he's read books, isn't that? I know, exactly the same. Have you? I bought you the Hobbit, have you read the Hobbit, Max? I've read it, I've read it. So we go for the third, your third choice is the picture, a picture of Dorian Gray, Oscar Wilde. Who, who knows this book? Anybody? Who's read it? And actually, Oscar Wilde pick up, crops up, doesn't he, in. Um, uh, uh, what's the book? Your, what, your book, he kind of wrote it, you why he. Which is interesting. I'm going to shut up about that. Devil's Apprentice. Devil's Paintbrush. Devil yeah, yeah. There's a reference to Oscar. Um, well, Oscar's um, downfall, actually. Um, which this sort of pre, this kind of prefigures in a way. I mean, 
I, I suppose my own personal connection with this book is, I, I, as I said, I, I kind of left education a little bit earlier than I should have done, really. I didn't do A-levels. Were you just bored by it, or you just... I was bored, and I kept getting into trouble, and I wasn't very... I was you were a bad boy. Well, I'd like to think I was, but actually, <laughs> not really. I was a very mediocre bad boy, actually. But I was, you know, yeah. And so I, I sort of ended up kind of trying to start... In some ways, that's the beginning of sort of educating myself, actually. Sorry, I, I did find myself reading more when I left school than when I was at school. Because reading at school seemed to be a total chore. But once I was doing sort of, I don't know. Didn't have the dead hand of No, and I remember finding a, a second-hand copy of The Picture of Dorian Gray in a, in a second-hand bookshop off Portobello Road when that area was actually quite interesting. Um, and I remember reading it. And it's... It, I mean, Wilde Wild has, has a tremendous talent and a very broad, um, a very broad talent. Um, you know, obviously the aphorism, the um, his ability, the drama, and, and, and you know, the great dramatist, uh, a sort of gothic sensibility, and a, you know, also obviously the, the, that kind of decadent world as well that he was so good at capturing. And I think it, it all culminates in the picture of Dorian Gray. He, um, he sort of, he kind of, I think, I think it's his best work, actually, and I think that it's, it's, it's the only novel work, um, and it's, he almost didn't have to write any others, because it's, it's such a, a kind of complete work, um, because it has, this, it has this great gothic kind of high, it's kind of a high concept idea, actually, fantastic idea, I mean, it's a sort of Narcissus story, kind of taken somewhere else. Um, but it has all his, it has all his kind of preoccupations, um, and his again, his he's got a, a lovely use of language. He's very, um, he's very playful uh, and very um, sulphurous as well. And I think he he took he took a lot. You know, I, I, people know about the, you know Huysmans, the French writer against, um, against, against nature, who wrote this astonishing book. It's one of my favourite books. A, if you haven't read it, you must read it. It's a very strange book. Bonkers. Completely bonkers. But this idea that we're kind of a decadent world, the kind of the end, the fantasy ecla, where everything is sort of coming to an end, um, but in this sort of glorious sunset, and this very kind of uh, artificial world as well, this interest, interest in, in, in improving on nature and trying to fight against nature, of course, which is what... Dorian Gray is trying to do all the way through, and of course, it's a terrible end. It's a terrible end. But you know, I again, I with that, I thought this is something that I can, um, you know, it, it, he he writes a very interesting um, introduction in verse form to or preface to to um, Dorian Gray, where he says that he doesn't believe there's anything such a thing as a morally good book, or you know, books aren't morally good or bad; they're just good or bad. There's no morality attached to them. They're, they're, it's about what you can achieve. Um, you know, and all, you know, he also says all art is, is utterly useless. You know, this, is, this is a sort of response to this notion that, we should, that somehow art should be improving. Um, but of course, in a strange way, Oscar Wilde, having said that, then does write something that does have Fantastic sort of sense of morality. To it. I mean, it's well, it's well beyond art for art's sake. It's a yeah, well, because it's about you know, it's about kind of 
desire and um, beauty. Uh, I mean, he 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 has his own self in there. You know, the Henry Wooden character, this very decadent aristocrat who leads Oscar Wilde astray, is sort of a it's a sort of it's a vision of his future self, really. Um, there's an artist character who captures, who does the picture, which again is a pic, is, is himself. It's, it, it's interesting for a book about narcissism. It's all about himself. Um, and of course... Well, it's quite literally portrait of the artist. It is, because this is... And of course, Dorian Gray is... is I mean, I don't think he'd met Bosie yet, but it's a, it's a vision of who the person that he ends up falling in love with as well. And what I love about it is that there's that Dorian Gray does it all. You know, he's he has an incre incredibly voracious appetite for living, um, and uh, yeah, and he plays it well. Yeah, I mean, it's quite. I mean, it, in some ways, it's quite emphatic in that, isn't it? There is a, you know, there is the. Yeah, I mean, he has to suffer. He, he has, has to, to suffer. He has, he has yeah. to. You no know, bad deeds can go unpunished. No, no. All good deeds. All good either. deeds. Either. No, no good deeds. Nothing can go unpunished if you're. Yeah, no. It's a funny. It's a funny one in that respect. Is that of all his works? I mean, his his plays are are, used, are much more playful, and they you know they, they, nobody really suffers that much. But in this, there is he does actually address the whole notion of of suffering um, because people do people you know, and of course all the way through, Dorian Gray is suffering, but we don't see it. You know, what if we could hide all those marks of woe? Um, and, you know. It doesn't work. No, the weird thing is that it doesn't work because you can tell. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, I, I kind of, yeah, no, no, there, there's nothing you can do. You can't, you can't, you can't. And I, Picture I, in the attic is an extraordinary yeah. artistic metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when was it that you, you started to think about writing yourself that you could be a writer. Have you written yeah. in school? Yeah. I, 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 I think up until secondary school I've written a lot. By the time, my problem was with secondary education. Primary education I had no trouble with because I was allowed to write stories. They could let me go on with that. And I think the first couple of terms at, at secondary school they, I was allowed to do that. But then suddenly these things came along where I had to do other things. And I, I really had very little interest in that. I mean, I didn't mind writing essay, you know, his, I quite like history, I quite like art, um, but there's all this other stuff I had very little time for. So, it, I, in a way, uh, I think after about 13, between maybe 13 and my late 20s, there's quite an arid period where I didn't really think about, I thought, hmm, it's not really working. I always, well, thought, that's that's I always thought that it was something I would do. But I've always been there. If I would ask, you know, I want. What was the book do you think that made you think I want to do that? That's a very good question because I should have included that. Shouldn't I? <laughs> oh, well, we can talk about it on passant. No, on passant. I don't know. I mean, I think all the way through, I always thought I'd love to be able to do something like that. Um, I mean, again, I, I talk about it with, with the final choice. There's always that danger as you read something mm -hmm. so good that you, it puts yeah, you yeah, off. Um, but I think. Yeah, and I always thought I could, because when I was little, I could, I could write stories. I think this was something that I, I feel. I mean, I think that storytelling is something. It's it's a collective. It's part of a collective culture. You don't. Um, everybody tells stories, some better than others. You know, and I think you know that 
Um, you know, I, sometimes I'm with people and I think, oh, I just can't tell that. <laughs> you know, and it's often the people who have really good stories to tell can't tell them. You know, they'll say, oh, I, you know, you, I, I've got a great dream thing. Yeah. They'll just tell it. It's even the prefix it with, I've got a great story. Yeah. You're going to love that. You're going to love that. that yeah. Just get dark <laughs> So we should, um, we should, we should give away. I mean, it's it's, it, I mean, it's really it's interesting thinking about this book in the context that you're writing. There's lots of things in it that yeah pick up on many of the themes and kind of yeah. I think I mean particularly around sexuality and you know um, I suppose the sort of the romantic aspect of men's relationships as well. But then you see that what's interesting is that that's that's always there. In you know, I mean, I, it's stupid to sort of impose anything particularly sexual about the Treasure Island, but there's a very romantic sense of, and I think that's what interests me. And I think the tragedy of Dorian Gray is that it's, he, he, it's, it really is gothic. It really is this destruction of the romantic self because, because he makes a pact with the devil. And so he can't have, he can't have a proper relationship. And he's, he's, he's damned. It's a horrible thing. Uh, at the, you know, and yet, if you could be beautiful all your life, you'd probably go for that. <laughs> it's, it's that sort of, it's so tempting. It's so tempting. I mean, it really, it's the, um, uh, it's, that, it's Harry in the long game. Like, in what's the point? You know, that's... The long film. Yeah, the long film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Harry, Harry has, Harry, uh, you know, my first novel, my central character has a series of, of you know, he, he, he's, he's, he, 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 he has these boyfriends, but it is the romantic thing that destroys him. It's not, you know, the sexual stuff can be dealt with, but it's his, he is a, actually, although he's borderline psychopathic, Harry's real failing or his weakness is his sentimentality. And I think that's what's interesting, interests me about, about, particularly when you look at villains. I think what's interesting about the villain, if it's done well, is there should be this, this, this kind of, this lost innocence, this kind of this doomed sentimentality and romanticism. really, really romantic. Well, it's it's really, you know, he's a, there's a, a great deal of pathos about him as a character, mm. um, as underneath the psych, psychopathy, which I want to come on to with your next book. So, my segue there, Tantalus Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, oh, there we go. Right, hand up first. Do you love that cover? Oh, Isn't yeah. That the trashiest <laughs> cover you've ever had. I don't know if people can see it. Talk about narcissism. It's him looking in the mirror, and he's got a very seventies haircut. It's, it's a brilliant. It's a brilliant seventies. Also, somebody is very unkindly put twenty. Twenty billion <laughs> tattooed on his cheek, like some borsley bar. The price of that, beauty. That's the price of him. Mine for twenty p. No, um, yeah. So, so, so. Patricia, I, said, I mean, one of one of the one of the, uh, one, of the uh, one of the kind of things you have to make honest choices. Or try and make honest choices on, on um, the, the 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 books I've, I've chosen, but I realised that there's only one woman writer, and I felt, come on, that's a bit. There's no quotes, no quotes here. I know, but I just think, hmm, that's what does that say about me? Um, you're a man. A man, yeah. Well, some kind of a man, as Marlon, as Marlon <laughs> says at the end, <laughs> in the end of the title, he was some kind of a man. What does it matter what you say about me? Pauline, yeah. These chairs are terrible. Um, uh, what are we? Yeah. No, but, but I, 
I, I'm, I'm very glad I was able to, to include the wonderful, wonderful Trisha Highsmith in this. And also because when I was looking at the noir genre, um, I was thinking, who could I choose? Uh, because I'm, I'm not particularly interested in what, one, what the American market would call mystery fiction, uh, what here is often called crime fiction. I'm not particularly interested in the soul, you know, the detective solving the mystery. What I love is is a dark world where nothing really is solved. Um, so I could have I could have chosen um, Graham Greene, uh, Dashiell Hammett, who's wonderful, wonderful, who kind of invented <coughs> the hard boiled novel. Um, uh, the, all sorts of people I could have chosen, but the one that really wipes the floor with all of them. And particularly with this book is 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 Patricia Heisman. She has such a dark sensibility and such an ability to get into this slightly sociopathic world. Um, and I love you know the the title of this book is just wonderful, wonderful kind of exploration. Um, I can't remember when it was first published. I, I always look at this because I, I it, it's it's always slightly shocking because it always feels more, much more staggering in modern day. Yeah, first published nineteen fifty six. And you read, I read, I read, read, every so often, because you can read it, well, obviously not every year, but I always have to check how old it is, because she kind of anticipates, I mean, now the, the central figure that's this really monstrous psychopath and very kind of strange and, you know, playing all sorts of tricks with our head, this is, this is mainstream fiction now. Uh, now it's 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 kind of acceptable. But and she, I mean, she 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 invented she it. it. Yeah, yeah. She really, really did invent it. And I think, you know, she said herself she had this kind of slight obsessiveness herself um, with Carol, uh, a book that she wrote. Um, I think a little bit that, before. Yeah, yeah. Because she wrote, she also wrote Strange, Strangers on a Train, which is a very very strange book as well. Um, but when she was writing Carol, apparently the, 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 the impetus of Carol came out of, she was in this department store and she saw this woman she became so obsessed with, she followed her home. And I think she does have this kind of element of, you know, she's, and I think writers do, one way or another. I mean, you I'm, need to be obsessive to do You do, you need to be slightly kind of deranged. Um, and, you know, famously, uh, Randall, the, the poet, said, you know, one needs a systematic arrangement of the senses. You know, you need to go somewhere slightly beyond. Um, I mean, if you're completely deranged, you'll not be able to write it. I mean, I have to say that that, that Highsmith, despite having all these sort of strange obsessive things, qualities, also spend a lot of boring time just sitting down writing stuff. Um, but that that kind of world itself is obsessive. I mean, why would you want to create? I mean, we know as children, you know, with this, you know, we want to play, we want to invent these adventures, we want to invent our own world. But you know, you get to a certain age, you think you still want to do that. And without that obsessiveness, you'll never get around to doing it. People say about discipline, you must be disciplined. But if it was just about discipline, I'd get somebody else to do it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really just discipline them and beat it out of them, but it wouldn't work. So you, have to, you have to be slightly deranged. As I say, you have to have that obsessive quality. And what's wonderful about the talent of Mr. Ripley is that you follow this really lost soul trying to find his way 
but he don't know. He he, he doesn't know. And then suddenly he realizes what he's going to do. And he's going to steal something. And that's a fantastic notion. And, you know, again, these things, you know, a mystery about identity theft, mainstream, to a penny. But back in the 50s, this is so strange. And it's so much of its time as well. It has this wonderful feeling of post-war Europe and the Americans being able to live very cheaply because the dollar was worth so much, particularly in Italy. You live like a king, virtually nothing. Uh, and she gets that sort of sense. And, um, and I, I, I really didn't like um, the Mugello adaptation. But one thing he did get right was the light. Yeah, the light. The light and the kind of feel of it and how it looked. Um, he got that very well, largely because it's Italian. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, he's got the light already. He's, well, I mean, he's, although he grew up on the Isle of Wight, he's Italian. <laughs> and he's, you know, I think it's, that's what's interesting about the film. It's about an Italian, uh, an English Italian going back and trying to find that Italy, of his parents' generation. But I think the problem with the Mengele, the Mengele, um, the Mengele interpretation of Ripley was too pat, it was too logical. Basically, in, in Mengele's script, I don't know if he wrote it, but the one he directed. The answer to Ripley is that he's a repressed homosexual. And, you know, if he only could come out, if he only sort of could have a proper relationship with a nice young man, it, everything would be right. No. She's, she's such a, that's really undersells her, doesn't it? Because she's yeah. much, much complex. She's much so, more complex than that. She's so fascinating. Actually, in all of the books that she's, she writes, possibly slightly with the exception of Carol, with that liminal space, mm. that kind of tiny, what is that very thin thread between you and then Spider-Man? Yeah, really? yeah, yeah. And, what, and actually lots of, you know, not, there's not a lot that divides us. That's no, and again, that's something that's become very mainstream. I mean, uh, John Monson wrote this book about, about psychopaths and we can all do the test and we can all work out how, how, for a how, yeah, how, how close we are <laughs> and how much it is. And the interesting thing, Mike, in my family, my, um, I didn't really know my parental grandfather. He was a strange person, sort of abandoned um, the family. He was in the show business, he was a dancer. He kind of just did, went off to America after the war. And um, he came back in the 60s and went back. He, he, came, he was a strange person, very unknowable, very charismatic, very handsome, very kind of self-assured, but something cold and dead behind the eyes. And I remember my older brother saying, who is actually a psychiatrist said, so we're trying to sort of work out, I said, well, he's probably just a well-adjusted psychopath. <laughs> and there are lots of well-adjusted psychopaths in the world. And I think that's what Highsmith knew before the mainstream. I mean, she was a very much ahead of her time, a very, very um, wonderful writer, a very, very, um, yeah. It's, and it, as I say, in terms of the noir form, she really gets it in space. Yeah. Because there's some certain things you read, and you think, yeah, and so many things about that genre, you think, well, is that, is that real? Are the people really like that? You know, so often, particularly, you know, when you see these villains, sometimes you think, they really like that. Whilst with Ripley, you don't, he doesn't even know who he is completely. There's so much unknowable about him. And I, I, lo I really, yeah, I love, I love that. I mean, it's something that is really I just, that comes out, I think, in a, a thread with with all of you. Was that interest in these charismatic, yeah, people who are not who where the where the where the kind of that fine line, the ambiguity 
mm. around somebody's yeah. moral, you know, somebody, somebody's obviously got no moral compass whatsoever, yeah. but they're neither good nor bad. You just, as a as a writer, you create a sense of a reader who really make these characters incredibly attractive. Mm. Which is what she does. You can't help but love her. Yeah. It's really yeah, 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 yeah. bad people. Uh, do you know what I've done? I've managed to miss out. Oh no, well, it's we're fine, it's fine. Back, we, can, we can put that, should we do that now? No, we'll do the poetry now. Brilliant. Right. Yeah, because I did want to have a, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, 20p. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <coughs> yeah, uh, that's really available. Can I just see what, the, what the, back, back, the back copy is? Is it, is it, is it, is that a good, a good thriller back that you might have... What was he in? doing at 25, living from week to week, no bank account, dodging cops now for the first time in his life? Ripley wanted out, wanted money, success, the good life, was willing to kill for it. As haunting and narrowing and harrowing a study of a schizophrenic murderer as paper will bear, as paper will bear. <laughs> a glittering addition to the meagre ranks of people who make books that you really want part of down. I, book book blurbs are brilliant. Yeah, when especially you've got a, a one book that you like in a, in a dozen different editions, yeah. and they've all had a different, <laughs> different happy scribbler at the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember doing a, a, a treatment for a television company once, and I, I said, "Well, I'm not sure if this isn't you know this is enough." And they said, "Don't worry, we'll slut it up." <laughs> <laughs> slut up, that's brilliant. I think, yeah, and that so that's my head. That's got the, that, 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 actually, it needs, I'd slap that up a bit more. Would you? Because yeah. I think that, that, the back of that has got the acrid smell of still cigarettes. <laughs> it's a bit too much acrid smell as well. So, your penultimate choice, which yes. actually wasn't, it was actually number four, but I got the order of it. doesn't matter, but because I, I, I did want to include poetry, um, and um, actually, uh, yeah, and so I, it's interesting that when, I often think, I hope in this format, like in um, Desert Island Discs, that it's taken as read we get the Bible and Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, okay, of course. And King I, James Bible. King James Bible. Not, because not I think, I mean, one of the things <coughs> about being a writer in English, you know, there, there is a fantastic tradition that we have. And we're very lucky to have this sort of sudden explosion of you know, English as a written and spoken language in the, in the, in the 16th and 17th century. That's fantastic. Um, and I do think what comes out of it, and, and another, another, there's, there's all sorts of poets I could choose, but it has to be William Blake. Uh, William Blake for me was, uh, again, when I was uh, I left school, I remember getting, it was very much like a, an edition like this, a little edition of, of Blake. Um, what's interesting is that I kind of, when I, 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 I emailed you, I wanted um, songs of, because it, it is often done as, a, as, a, as two books in one, which is Songs of Innocence and of Experience. But they actually are two books. Um, but looking over it again, and this might say something about me, I realise that actually all the poems that I really remember are from Songs of Experience. Um, I don't think you can have Songs of Experience. I mean, Blake, I think Blake had to write Songs of Innocence in order that he, so he could write Songs of Experience, because I think that's where the real, the really wonderful poems come out. Um, would you like to give us a flavour of this? Well, I, I, well I, yes, I could read tons of it. I mean, I, I, I can remember some of it. Um, I mean, I, 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 the, my favourite, my favourite, uh, I see if I can remember it. Um, because what Blake, what Blake is so good at is the precision. And it seems childlike. It is childlike. He was somehow in touch with a very, very 
and a delicate sensibility. So the poems are often very succinct, very, very, um, almost like haiku, you know, very, very minimal, beautiful, spare. <clears throat> and I think my favour from Songs and Experience is um, The Little Fly. And it's um, Little Fly by Summer's Play. My thoughtless hand has brushed away. Am I not a fly like thee? Art not thou a man like me? For I dance and drink and sing till some blind hand shall brush my wing. If thought is life and strength and breath and the want of thought is death, then I am a happy fly if I live or if I die. <laughs> I will hold the jazz with you, of course. Of course. I always like that. Jazz musicians uh, will often, when, they, when they, the, the, there's a tradition of them holding the instrument out, so <laughs> you applaud the instrument. I'm not, I'm not the. Well, I'm you, you employ the, the man as the person behind. And in fact, in the Commedia dell'arte, they will hold the mask, they will take the mask and hold the mask out, so you applaud the mask as well. Um, yes, I, 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 there's, there's all sorts of um, poems from. This. I, I think the one I like from, uh, which is in the introduction to um, Songs of Experience, no, Songs of Innocence, which he sets out his stall. It's very difficult to read this because it's, Blake um, did, did these astonishing kind of etchings. They were kind of multimedia, multimedia of right. his time because they, he, he invented all these inks and dyes and ways of etching. So they're sometimes quite hard. But this is the introduction to Songs of Innocence. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a, on a cloud I saw a child, and he laughing said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped, he wept to hear. Drop that pipe, that, drop thy pipe, thy happy pipe. Sing thy songs of happy cheer. So I sung the same again, while he wept with joy to hear. Piper, sit thee down and write. In a book that, that all might read. So I vanished from my so he vanished from my sight, and I plucked a hollow reed, and I made a rural pen, and I stained the water clear, and I wrote my happy songs. Every child may joy to hear. So that's how he sort of sets his kind of stall. Um, I mean, there's, uh, I'll just finish with another one. I mean, I could, I could, I could read. Black. I mean, what Why I love about another session just let's go. I mean, well, he's, he. Live at the Devonshire Club. He, he's, often, he's often set to music. They, he often would sing his, you know, there's an element of song to his poetry, which I think you, not, you won't get from me, but you'll get from reading it. Um, but I suppose the other, the other one that might relate to, to, to some, some of my work directly is his, his vision of London. London in, in, um, in, uh, in Songs of Experience. I wander through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames doth flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood round the palace wall. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights the plagues 
the marriage hurt. The idea of the marriage hurt. He's quite, I mean, he's chilling, really. There's something quite, I mean, he, it is some, it's innocence and experience. I think what he gets, which is what I'm always interested in, is the, is the loss of innocence and how, you know, the, the, and the kind of struggle for redemption, the idea that one wants to, to, find, to find a way back. So this story so, that's brilliantly, brilliantly explored with Edward first. So well, I mean, the, the, I mean that's pretty, the last that's the, the last thing about the, the, the you know the youthful harlot's curse. You know that he would have heard when he lived in that part of London. You know, very young girls calling out at the night and trying to get trade. And you know, being in that marriage hearse because the, the, the life expectancy was so low, that life was so tough. And this is love, you know. This is this is this is what people are, you know. This is this is connected to. You know, he's, he's interested in. in he, he he had this astonishing vision of what life could be, and what the imagination could be. Um, his his wife, Mrs. Blake, often said, "Mr. Blake, I know very little. He's he's too often in paradise. <laughs> he can spend these times in visions." It's very hard to. It's very hard to know. He's often misin. I think misinterpreted by modern critics. They often say, "Oh, he's part of a radical tradition or part of this tradition." This he was really out there. He really was. I mean, he he was said to have found people who saw ghosts at night rather dull and un unimaginable because he said, "I see fairies during the day, and I see all this stuff." You only see the, you see these sort of you see these dull shapes at night. Is that all you see? He's, a, he's extremely in the, uh, he's not enough red, I don't think. I don't know. I mean, he's, he's one of the, I, I think he's, he's always there, and I think he's always being read. The interesting thing about Blake in his lifetime, he was, he, he died in obscurity. He was kind of rediscovered. Um, but I think that's the thing about him, he's always being rediscovered. And I think his, his, his work, because of the spareness, it, there's a modernity to his work. He's, he's, he, he, he has that kind of simplicity that, that, that will always get an audience, I think. And each new reader regenerates him in their own Yeah, I think so. I shape. think so. Right. The last book. Yeah. Who, who knows James Baldwin? This is a collection of short stories. Do you, well, should we start, Rick, do you want to start a little bit with giving some context to James Baldwin? Right. Yeah, I mean, James Baldwin um, grew up in Harlem. Uh, he kind of had an interesting childhood where he, at one point, he was one of those kids that would testify at church. He had a, he would preach, and you find that in his work. He had this tremendous energy, uh, this kind of sense of testifying. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so he came from a quite a rough background, black Harlem. Uh, and gay. I mean, I, I remember being this fantastic, <coughs> seeing this fantastic interview with um, Baldwin, uh, I don't know, sometime in the 70s probably, uh, by some very BBC interviewer. I hope you don't mind me saying that uh, as a young man growing up in a very poor working class back, and of course being black and, and, and of course being gay, it must be very, very difficult. Especially with the, he said, so no, I, I, I thought I hit the jackpot. <laughs> and I think, you know, Baldwin, he really did kind of, for his time, he was very, you know, very, uh, uh, he's another one of those writers 
very much a groundbreaking writer. Uh, you know, he starts writing short stories in the 40s. Um, and, you know, G Giovanni Sormi is, is the novel he's, he's probably best known for, which is one of the, one of the very first um, books about gay men. Uh, and it sort of traces his experience, because he went to live in Paris in the 50s, I think, or maybe the 40s. Uh, but I like his short pieces. I like his, uh, him as a short story writer. And I wanted a collection of short stories. And of course, I could have chosen all sorts of people. Because um, I, love, I love the form. Largely because I find it so difficult. Um, I find it very difficult to get that precision. I mean, I find poetry impossible uh, because of that. And I find short stories. You know, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote to a friend um, apologizing, saying, I'm, I'm writing you a long letter I don't have time to write your short one. And I feel that about writing. The, the, novel, the novel gives you all that space to, you know, you can go off and you can, you know, you can sort of, there's, there's a lot of room, there's a lot of hint to that. But with, with certain short stories, you know, I think these are, you know, I, I wish I could. I mean, these, these are really extraordinary. I hadn't read any Baldwin before, right. know, which I feel is now a desperate gap in my whole education. Mm. I mean, with three words, he just kills you. Mm. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And there's uh, in this collection, it's going to meet the man. It's, there's a there's a there's a very broad range. Um, and famously, the 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 titles, the title stories, quite very controversial at the time. It takes he go, goes into the mind of a of a white racist, uh, and it's an. I've it's it's just it's it's Absolutely really painful. it's astonishing. And it goes places where you don't expect, and it, there's all there's all sorts of stuff about sexuality there, which is just terrifying, absolutely terrifying. Um, but then you know there's other earlier stories about you know sort of obviously based on his you know child experiences. There's a wonderful one, the outing, where it's all about a church outing, where essentially you know there's these teenage boys, and one falls in love with the other. Um, very very touching, very delicate. So he goes from, from very, very, um, very, very brutal to very, very, um, very delicate kind of. And, you, and you're, going, you're going to read Lidlani because it's actually really. Well, I wanted to talk. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about Sonny's Blues. Sonny's Blues, I think, is his best story, uh, and I think it's one of my. I, if I wanted to choose the one story, one short story that I think. I put up there is, is Sonny's Blues. And uh, you know, I was talking earlier about the danger when you're trying to write yourself and reading other people's work. And what you tend to, you know, the danger then is you can't write, read anything. And you know, when I talk to people about writing, I say, read, read, whatever you do, read. I don't want to read fiction because it'll put me off writing. And I do understand that because when I was trying to write, I read Sonny's Blues and I couldn't write anything for about Fortnight, maybe longer, because I thought, what's the point? This is the perfect story. I'm never going to write anything as good as um, The reality is, I still haven't written anything as good as that. I'm not going to. What you have to do is get over yourself, because reading is more important than writing, especially if you think this is better than you. Because, you know, you're, 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 your intention should be long. Your, your, what is it? Your, your reach should be longer than your grasp, or your grasp should be. You know, you, you, you should. Got to be striving. Yeah, you've got to be trying to do better. 
Um, and reading something like that does sort of bring that to mind and think, well, it puts you in your place a bit. So just get over yourself. And that's what I try and say to people, because it's arrogant. It's a, there's an arrogance to say, oh, I don't, when I'm writing fiction, I don't read any fiction. Well, why not? Because I might be influenced. Says, you should be so lucky. You know, you really should. And often the people on the courses that say they don't read any fiction when they're writing, you think, well, that's the problem. Because you're not being. Yeah, you've got no idea. You've never read anything. Yeah, and you're not being. You know, you think, oh, well, what if I steal? I unconsciously steal something. That's what happens. You're part of a tradition. You're not. Right, you know, you're not going to come up with anything new. Um, so, Sun is Blues. I mean, I'd love to read a bit of Sun is Blues. I'll, I'll explain a little bit about the story. It's um, a beautifully constructed story that takes place in um, maybe the late forties or early fifties in Harlem, and it's about two brothers. And Sonny is the younger brother. The older brother, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, two brothers, all stuff about relationships between, they talk about relationships between men, relationships between brothers, which is so, such a charged thing. Um, the older brother, and I don't think we ever hear his, I don't think we ever know what his name is actually, but the older one has sort of done all right, he's become a teacher, he's become a mathematics teacher, and he's sort of trying to, you know, he's been struggling to get. You know, their parents have died when they're both quite young, and he's been trying to get to that. He's, he, you know, when his mother dies, he says, Look after Sonny. And he feels Sonny's been very wayward. He left, he leaves the family home, he joins the Navy. He wants to be a musician. He comes back, What sort of musician do you want to be? He wants to be a jazz musician. And then, you know, of course, he, he, he becomes a junkie. The beginning of the story is the brother, older brother, finding out that his father's gone to prison because of possession of. He despairs about the younger brother. And there's this whole struggle about what you do. And there's, in the, you know, there, there's, there's a lot. As I say, the wonderful thing about it, it couldn't work as a novel. Because it's just perfectly paced. You get enough about the backstory, you get enough about their relationship, the family history, all these sorts of little things in the past as well. The fact that the older brother's daughter dies when she's quite young. Um, and that's what's terrifying about that form, because th this story is deeper and richer than most novels I know, and yet it all takes place within probably less than 20 pages. The, the, the kind of lead up to the final scene, they have this sort of rather tortuous conversation. The older brother is sort of trying to sort of, he's the logical one, he's saying, you know, son, you've got to get through this. And Sonny's saying, well, maybe I won't. Maybe I won't. You've just got to accept that. And he, as a sort of parking shot, says, do you want to come to a club with me? And so he, comes to, he goes to a jazz club with Sonny. And all the way through, the older brother has been the kind of high status one, and the one with all the kudos and everything. But Sonny goes into this, everything gets turned on his head. He goes to a place where everybody knows Sonny. And he's only there because his son, son is brother. And he's sort of sitting in the corner. And Sonny's, you know, coming back to this other family. And, you know, it's very hard. I don't know, who is it said that all art um, tends towards the music? You know, all, uh, is it in Forster, maybe, I think, so, somewhere. And it's very hard to write about things that aren't verbal, like music. And I think Orman gets it very well. I mean, there's a lot of very bad jazz writers. I mean, I think most of the beat generation, you can't read Kerouac about 
out of jazz anymore. It's just so silly. He was, I mean, fair play to him. He was, he was trying to do something. I mean, some of Ginsburg, some of Ginsburg poetry gets that jazz sensibility. But um, Jimmy Morgan gets in spades here. Yeah, so he's arrived in the club in the city. They were going to play soon. And Crayol installed me by myself at a table in a dark corner. Then I watched them, Crayol and the little black man and Sonny and the others, while they horsed around, standing just below the bandstand. The light from the bandstand spilled just a little short of them, and watching them laughing and gesturing and moving about, I had the feeling that they, nevertheless, were being most careful not to step into that circle of light too suddenly. That if they moved into the light too suddenly, without thinking, they would perish in flame. Then, while I watched one of them, the small black man, moved into the light and crossed the bandstand and started fooling around with his drums. Then, being funny and also being also extremely ceremonious, Crayol took Sonny by the arm and led him to the piano. A woman's voice called Sonny's name and a few hands started clapping. And Sonny, also being funny and being ceremonious and so touched, I think, that he could have cried, but either hiding it or showing it, riding it like a man, grinned and put both hands to his heart and bowed from the waist. Crayol then went to the bass fiddle and a lean, very bright-skinned brown man jumped up on the bandstand and picked up his horn. So there they were, and the atmosphere on the bandstand in the room began to change and tighten. Someone stepped up to the microphone and announced them. Then there were all kinds of murmurs. Some people at the bar shushed others. The waitress ran round, frantically getting the last orders. Guys and chicks got closer to each other, and the lights on the bandstand, on the quartet, turned to a kind of indigo. Then they all looked different there. Crayol looked about him for the last time, as though he were making certain that all his chickens were in the coop. And then he jumped and struck the fiddle. And there, there they were. All I know about music is that not many people ever really hear it. And even then, on the rare occasions when something opens within and the music enters, what we mainly hear, or hear corroborated, are personal, private, vanishing evocations. But the man who creates the music is hearing something else, is dealing with a roar rising from the void and imposing itself as it hits the air. What is invoked in him, then, is of another order, more terrible, because it has no words, and triumphant, too, for that same reason. And his triumph, when he triumphs, is ours. I just watched his son's face. His face was troubled. He was working hard, but he wasn't with it. And I had that feeling, in a way, Everyone on the bandstand was waiting for him, both waiting for him and pushing him along. But as I began to watch Creole, I realized it was Creole who held them all back. He had them all on a short lane, up there, keeping the beat with his whole body, wailing on the fiddle with his eyes half closed. He was listening to everything, but he was listening to Sonny. He was having a dialogue with Sonny. He wanted Sonny to leave the shoreline and strike out for the deep. He was Sonny's witness. That deep water and drowning were not the same thing. He had been there and he knew. And he wanted Sonny to know. He was waiting for Sonny to do the things on the keys which would let Creole know that Sonny was in the water. And while Creole listened, Sonny moved deep within, exactly like someone he was born at. I had never before thought of how awful the relationship must be between the musician and his instrument. He has to fill it, this instrument with the breath of his life, his own. He has to make it do what he wants it to do. And a piano is just a piano. 
It's made of so much wood and wires and little hammers and big ones and ivory. While there's only so much you can do with it, the only way to find this out is to try. To try and make it do everything. And Sonny hadn't been near a piano for over a year. And he wasn't on much better terms with his life, not with the life that stretched before him now. He and the piano stammered, started one way, got scared, stopped, started another way, panicked, marked time, started again, then seemed to have found a direction, panicked again, got stuck. And the face I saw on Sonny, I had never seen before. Everything had been burnt out of it. And at the same time, things usually hidden were being burned in. By the fire and the fury of the battle which was occurring in him up there. Yet watching Creole's face as they neared the end of the first set, I had a feeling that something had happened, something I hadn't heard. Then they finished. There was scattered applause, and then, without an instant's warning, Creole started into something else. It was almost sardonic. It was, am I blue? And, as though he commanded, Sonny began to play. Something began to happen. And Creole let out the reins. The dry, low black man said something awful on the drums. Crayol answered, and the drums talked back. Then the horn insisted, sweet and high, slightly detached perhaps, and Crayol listened, commenting now and then, dry and driving, beautiful and calm and old. Then they were, all came together again, and Sonny was part of the family again. I could tell this from his face. He seemed to have found, right there beneath his fingers, a damn brand new piano. It seemed he couldn't get over it. Then, for a while, just being happy with Sonny, they seemed to be agreeing with him that brand new pianos certainly were a gas. Then Creole stepped forward to remind them that what they were playing was the blues. He hit something in all of them. He hit something in me, myself, and the music tightened and deepened. Apprehension began to beat the air. Creole began to tell us what the blues were all about. They were not about anything very new. He and his boys up there were keeping it new, at the risk of ruin, destruction, madness and death, in order to find new ways to make us listen. For while the tale of how we suffer, of how we are delighted, and how we may triumph is never new, it is always must be heard. There isn't any other tale to tell. It's the only light we've got in all this time. And this tale, according to that face, that body, those strong hands on those strings, has another aspect in every country and a new depth in every generation. Listen, Creole seems to say, listen. Now these are Sonny's blues. He made the little black man on the drums know, and the bright brown man on the horn. Creole wasn't trying any longer to get Sonny in the water. He was wishing him Godspeed. Then he stepped back, very slowly, filling the air with the immense suggestion that Sonny speak for himself. Then they all gathered around Sonny, and Sonny played every now and again, and one of them seemed to say, Amen. Sonny's fingers filled the air with life, his life, but that life contained so many others. And Sonny went all the way back. He really began with a spare, flat statement of the opening phrase of the song. Then he began to make it his. It was very beautiful because it wasn't hurried, and it was no longer a lament. I seemed to hear with what burning he had made it his, and with what burning we had yet to make it ours, how we could cease lamenting. Freedom lurked around us, and I understood at last that he could help us to be free, if we could listen, but we would never be free until we did. Yet there was no battle in his face now, 
I heard what he had gone through and would continue to go through until he came to rest in her. He had made it in. That long line of which we knew only Mama and Daddy. And he was giving it back, as everything must be given back, so that passing through death, it can live forever. I saw my mother's face again and felt for the first time how the stones of the road she had walked on must have bruised her feet. I saw the moonlit road where my father's brother died, and it brought something else back to me and carried past me. I saw my little girl again and felt Isabel's tale of tears again, and I felt my own tears begin to rise. And I was yet aware that this was only a moment that the world waited outside as hungry as a tiger, and that trouble stretched us above us longer than the sky. Then it was over. Crail and Sunny let out their breath, both soaking wet and grinning. There was a lot of applause, and some of it was real. In the dark, the girl came by, and I asked her to take drinks to the bandstand. There was a long pause while they talked up there in the indigo light, and after a while, I saw the girl put a scotch and milk on top of a can for Sunny. He didn't seem to notice it, but just before they started playing again, he sipped from it and looked towards me and nodded. Then he put it back on top of the piano. For me, then, as they began to play again, it glowed and shook above my brother's head like the very cup of trembling. Wow. I think, I think I've just got a little bit of that magic that you had when your father was reading Alison, Adventures of Wonderland as a little child. Well, I always think there's a generosity in, 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 in writing, in that you can read it, and you can read it out loud, and that, that gives me a lot of pleasure. Well, oh, it gave us a lot of pleasure too. I think we need to, I'm going to, well, here are you, I'm going to give you the book to... Uh, oh, right, yes. To can I give it to you? <laughs> <laughs> this is an interesting one. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> you wrote a funny word too. Um, that was amazing. I think that more than anything, just really nails why you always must read, strive, yeah. read books by people who are better writers than you're ever yeah. going to be. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, and if you don't, then you're not a writer. Well, you, you, I think, as I say, I think being a reader is, is as important as being, probably more, it's more important being, reading is more important than writing. People reading is more important than writing is the promise of the books that build me. Yeah. <laughs> Jake. Thank you very, very, Thank you very much. much. Thank you for listening to The Books That Built Me. You can find out more on the website, uk, or on Facebook. And I'd like to thank the lovely sponsors of The Books That Built Me, Champagne Bollinger, Prestat Chocolate, and Tatler.